The Crimopedia podcast is a completely independent show that explores content of a potentially violent and disturbing nature. Please use your listening discretion. Extra trigger warning for this episode. We will be discussing missing and murdered Indigenous women and some history around the injustices faced by Indigenous peoples in Canada, both past and present. Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Crimopedia podcast. I'm your host, Allison, and on today's episode in the MMIWG 2S Plus series, we're going to be talking about intimate partner violence. In 2013, law student at the University of Ottawa here in Canada, Marion Pierce, published a thesis. The dissertation is titled, An Awkward Silence, Missing and Murdered Vulnerable Women in the Canadian Criminal Justice System. Within it, she details cases of missing and murdered women and girls in Canada, and how difficult it has been to reconcile their disappearances and deaths given nuances in the Canadian criminal justice system. Part of her abstract reads, The disappearances and murders of scores of women in British Columbia, Alberta, and Manitoba have highlighted the vulnerability of women to extreme violence. Girls and women of Aboriginal ethnicity have been disproportionately affected in all of these cases, and have high rates of violent victimization. The current socioeconomic situation faced by Aboriginal women contributes to this. To provide publicly available data of missing and murdered women in Canada, a database was created containing details of 3,329 women, including 824 who are Aboriginal. The end of her abstract reads, quote, For women with vulnerable life histories, violence is a daily threat and a common occurrence. More must be done to prevent violence and to hold defenders responsible when violence has been done. This dissertation is a plea for resources and attention, to turn apathy into pragmatic, concrete action founded on solid, evidence-based research. I've spent a lot of time sifting through that database that was mentioned of over 3,000 Canadian women who have been victimized. To be candid, I've used this database as a resource to pull cases from in my MMIWG 2S Plus series. But today's episode is a little bit different. Although I will be telling the story of one Indigenous woman who was victimized at the hands of her intimate partner, I'd like to highlight that within that database from Marianne Pierce, there are 361 cases of missing and murdered women, girls, and 2S identifying individuals who have been murdered at the hands of their intimate partner. The vast majority of these cases involve the deaths of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis individuals. Today, we're going to be highlighting how the intersection of being female or 2S identifying, as well as being Indigenous, puts people at a higher risk of intimate partner violence. To share the full scope of the story, I'll have a couple of mini-stories to tell, but I'd like to highlight the case of 39-year-old Inesik Akavak, who was murdered almost 24 years ago to the day by her intimate partner. With that, let's jump right in. According to the Communities Alliances and Networks 2022 fact sheet on MMIWG and domestic violence, approximately 6 in 10, or 63% of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit women experienced physical or sexual violence in their lifetime, compared to 45% of non-Indigenous women. 
One paper cited by Statistics Canada by Loanna Heindinger from the Canadian Centre for Justice and Community Safety Statistics reports the quote-unquote dark figure of crimes against Indigenous women, girls, and 2S individuals, stating that intimate partner violence and sexual assault are often not reported. What this means is that those staggering statistics are likely vastly smaller than they are in actuality, and that much of the missing data comes from intimate partner violence. I'm sure many of us are familiar with the nuances of physical and sexual assault. If you listen to this podcast, I'm sure you know what those definitions are, or can at least imagine what that looks like. But according to Statistics Canada, those two forms of assault are often considered the most severe types of violence. But other forms of intimate partner abuse exist, which are hidden, such as psychological abuse, which is characterized by behaviors intended to control, isolate, manipulate, and or humiliate victims, and can have, quote, detrimental and long-lasting consequences of victims that continue long after contact with an abuser ends. Reportedly, this is the most common type of intimate partner violence, the nature of which likely accounts for the missing incidence data, as a controlling, manipulative abuser would likely intimidate any victim into not coming forward. However, with that consideration, some have attempted to quantify the intersection of psychological intimate partner violence and the experience of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit women and girls. One figure I saw reported that 57% of First Nations and 63% of Métis women and 2S individuals have experienced it. Although those numbers come with a lot of uncertainty, what is conclusive is that First Nations, Métis, and Inuit women, girls, and 2S identifying individuals are more likely than anyone to have a partner who was jealous and didn't want or let them talk to people who put them down, called them names, gaslit them, and prevented them from seeking independence. Another definite is that Indigenous women, girls, and 2S identifying individuals who are the victims of homicide are more likely to have been killed by an intimate partner, with the overall risk of victimization being heightened in more remote, isolated communities. During the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, the Native Women's Association of Canada conducted a series of nationwide grassroots consultations, as they put it, to understand how quarantine and isolation periods were affecting Indigenous women, girls, and 2S-identifying individuals and their likelihood of being afflicted by intimate partner violence. Pre-pandemic, although with a bit of uncertainty, it was totally clear that Indigenous women, girls, and 2S individuals were at a higher likelihood of experiencing intimate partner violence. But now that everyone was stuck at home, with even less places to escape, the Native Women's Association wanted to understand what the effects might be. According to them, preliminary results indicated a, quote, deeply concerning spike in the number of Indigenous women who say they are facing more violent incidents since the pandemic began, often by an intimate partner. In their report, they state that they surveyed 250 Indigenous women and found that one in five reported they'd been a victim over the previous three months. These results came very shortly after a promise from the Canadian federal government to commit $40 million in funding to Women and Gender Equality Canada, with $30 million marked for immediate needs of shelters and sexual assault centres, and the rest being provided to Indigenous Services Canada and their existing network of 46 emergency shelters on reserve lands and in the Yukon to support Indigenous women and children fleeing violence. Although this sounds like a great promise with lots of optimism, the discrepancy in funding allocation did not reflect needs, according to Lorraine Whitman, who was the president of the Native Women's Association. 
with only one quarter of that funding being dedicated to specifically indigenous needs, the rest of it going to shelters and sexual assault centers, the Rain was concerned that these centers were not equipped with the cultural safety resources to protect First Nations, Inuit, and Métis women, and that the other indigenous-focused services may be few and far between for many to access. A lack of cultural competencies and safety resources can lead to hesitation for many to access necessary health and safety resources, for the same reason as to why there is hesitancy to access medical care in Canada for Indigenous peoples. According to Lorraine, quote, they're not inclusive of Indigenous values that we have in our traditions and ceremonies. In any sort of crisis, such as a medical emergency or an Indigenous woman fleeing intimate partner violence, it might be hard on the surface to understand why cultural safety and competency is important. But it's about much more than healthcare workers and crisis support workers understanding different ceremonies and traditions that different Indigenous cultures keep. It's about how far Canadian institutions have gone in the opposite direction, holding deeply held systemic biases against Indigenous people. For Indigenous men, it's often about alcoholism, thus leading to unwarranted arrests and something called starlight tours, which we haven't spoken about yet, but I would like to in this series. As a brief overview, the term starlight tours was coined after decades of Saskatoon police out of the province of Saskatchewan arresting indigenous men and driving them to the outskirts of the city in the middle of winter, leaving them there to try to traverse home by themselves. This often resulted in indigenous men being found deceased outside the city, frozen to death. These unwarranted arrests are often justified by police through accusations of disorderly conduct associated with alcoholism, which is not the case for many of the men who have been victimized, although full investigations have hardly ever been conducted, as it only came out that Saskatoon police had been conducting these starlight tours well after the epidemic had surpassed its largest wave. Similar incidences have been documented all over. Notably, close to where I am, they've been documented in the city of Toronto, where Toronto police were taking Indigenous people out to Cherry Beach in the middle of winter and leaving them there. Although Cherry Beach is not necessarily in the middle of nowhere, it's encapsulated by a vastly industrial area of Toronto, away from many residential neighborhoods and businesses, away from anyone who could offer help to someone who'd been a victim of the Starlight Tours. I will talk about this more one day, but I digress. Let me get back to my original point. For Indigenous women, as is the case with Black women historically in North America, these outward or inherent biases expressed by public service workers are often related to attention-seeking, especially in scenarios when Indigenous or Black women are seeking medical care or crisis support. For Indigenous women, their concerns are often not believed, due to preconceived notions about a woman's character stemming from biases about her Indigenous culture. To really drive this point home, I'd like to share with you briefly the story of Joyce Eshaquan, who was 37 years old when she died in 2020 after trying to seek medical care in Quebec. Joyce Eshaquan was born on a First Nations reserve in Quebec called Manawan. Beginning in about 2014, she began having complications associated with her heart, and from that point on to 2020 when she died, she had been in and out of hospital receiving treatment for it. One of those treatments included the insertion of a pacemaker. Joyce suffered from a disorder called cardiomyopathy, which is a disorder affecting the muscles of the heart, causing it to be unable to pump blood to the rest of the body as effectively as it should. 
Although there are different kinds of cardiomyopathy, and I'm not sure exactly which one Joyce had, this is a very serious medical condition that requires care and close monitoring. Some types of cardiomyopathy can also result in the heart losing its ability to maintain its normal rhythm, which, given that Joyce had a pacemaker inserted, that tells me that she had one of these types of cardiomyopathies. Given her very real and very serious, extensive medical history, what happened to her next is absolutely heartbreaking, unacceptable, and unequivocally the result of racist biases. At the Delanadier Hospital in Quebec, Joyce had been admitted for her rare heart condition. She had been experiencing pain and was trying to seek medical care. However, she found herself being discriminated against, so she started recording a Facebook Live video. In the video, you can see her screaming out in pain and agony while healthcare workers abused her, made derogatory comments about her, and restrained her to her bed. While she cried out, one hospital employee asked her if she was, quote, done acting stupid, and she was accused of drug-seeking. While she was there, she was also given morphine in what some reports claimed to be an attempt to sedate her, despite valid concerns that she would have an adverse reaction to it, and according to her family, she was allergic. When one of the nurses realized that her scathing comments were being recorded on video, she attempted to grab Joyce's phone and delete the recording. But thankfully, it's preserved on the internet forever, as Joyce Eshaquan died later that day from pulmonary edema, or a large accumulation of fluid in her lungs, which is undoubtedly a medical emergency, and equally undoubtedly the result of medical negligence. I speak about Joyce Eshaquan as one example amongst the many that we have discussed already in this series, about how public service employees, including first responders, often discriminate against Indigenous peoples, leading to situations of life and death, often resulting in death, disability, and or lifelong trauma. Evidently, this speaks to the funding discrepancy by the Canadian government to safeguard women and girls from intimate partner violence, and how not enough of it was dedicated to Indigenous-focused resources. Every effort should be made to accommodate cultural safety in the context of all public service provisions, including and especially women's shelters and sexual assault centers. Until that effort is made, who's to say those places are even safe for Indigenous women, girls, and 2S-identifying individuals? And when the question of safety is up in the air, Indigenous women, girls, and 2S individuals experiencing intimate partner violence are less likely to seek support, as if the cycle of abuse and coercive control isn't already grappling enough. In October of 2018, the Ontario Provincial Police Repeat Offender Parole Enforcement Squad, or the ROPE Squad, issued a Canada-wide warrant for Kutu Karak, a convicted murderer who was at the time at large somewhere in either Ottawa, Canada's capital located within the province of Ontario, or nearby Montreal across provincial borders in Quebec. Kutu had been incarcerated in Ottawa. According to the Nanatsiak News, it was at the Millhaven Institution, somewhere that notorious serial murderer Paul Bernardo has spent some time. But Kutu had been released on day parole, which in Canada is intended to give offenders a chance to, quote, participate in community-based activities while serving a sentence, such as employment, volunteer work, or academics. It's a program intended to prepare inmates for release on full parole or statutory release conditions. And in theory, it's a great idea, so that offenders are ready to re-enter society as civil citizens. 
But as pathological manipulators and repeat offenders often are, Kutu was not finished with what he had started, and had shown repeatedly in court that he had felt as if his sentence was unfair, and that he deserved to be free. As a result, when he left one day on day parole, he just didn't come back. I mention this to highlight Kutu's entitlement, which is especially egregious given the depravity of his actions. A jury trial in April 2001 found Kutu guilty of second-degree murder for killing his intimate partner, Inusik Akavak, when he was only 32 years old and she was 39. Leading up to her death, there had been well-documented reports of abuse against Inusik by Kutu. Five months prior to her death, on September 5th of 1999, Royal Canadian Mounted Police stationed in Iqaluit charged Kutu with assault and the complainant was Inusik. The details of this assault are unclear, but Kutu was arrested and put through programming for rehabilitation. After serving his time, he was released on the condition that he had to report to the John Howard Society every day from Monday to Friday. For those who don't know, the John Howard Society is a nonprofit organization with community offices all across the province of Ontario. Their aim is to, quote, provide programs and services that help people affected by the justice system develop key life skills, navigate issues of criminal justice, and build productive futures after incarceration. Kutu was also responsible to report to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Detachment every Saturday between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. He was also to refrain from possessing or using drugs and alcohol, and to keep the peace and maintain good behavior. However, it didn't seem like Kutu was keen on keeping the peace or abiding by his conditional release orders. Court documents on November 20th revealed that Kutu had been charged under Section 145 of the Criminal Code of Canada after breaching a condition of release related to alcohol. Despite abusing his spouse and then violating the conditions of his release, he was yet again allowed to go free and told to attend court a week and a half later, on December 6th of 1999 which, mind you, provided him plenty of opportunity to delay trial proceedings, consequently allowing him to delay the opportunity to go back to jail after breaching the conditions of his release, and he certainly did so, citing issues related to acquiring legal counsel. As a result, he wouldn't end up back in court until after Inusek had already been murdered. While Kutu was navigating the criminal justice system on his assault charge and breach of conditional release order, all the while technically being a free man, this allowed him to continue perpetuating abuse against Inusik, as she was not protected from the Canadian criminal justice system. On February 10, 2000, in the apartment that Kutu and Inusik shared together within an eight-story building that they shared in Iqaluit, the couple had gotten into an altercation that resulted in Kutu grabbing Inusik's scarf and using it to strangle her to death while her five-year-old daughter, Millie, was present. Kutu then left the apartment, and it's unclear who had reported Inusik's death, but her dead body was left in her apartment with her five-year-old daughter. Upon discovery, Inusik's body had been flown down to Edmonton, Alberta for autopsy. Meanwhile, her daughter was placed into child welfare services shortly after finding her mother dead inside her home. Police reports state that Kutu was arrested shortly after Inusik's body was discovered in her apartment, but it's unclear, slash, police kind of refused to comment about whether or not he turned himself in. Despite some appalling statements in court that I'll get to in a moment, 
According to the Nenatsiak News, he did admit to killing his wife. In addition to being charged with second-degree murder, Kutu was later charged with also failing to keep the peace and be of good behavior, especially towards Inusik, and again, failure to refrain from possession or usage of alcohol. According to reports, Kutu became violent and angry when intoxicated, and directed all of his anger towards Inusik, a cycle of violence and abuse that, once again, was documented in the criminal justice system. And yet, it was such a system that failed to identify it in a way where he was allowed to be released after assaulting her, resulting in her death, and he was allowed to be released on day parole even after that, resulting in a failure for him to return back to the institution, and a Canada-wide warrant being issued. What's most infuriating to me is that the cycles of abuse and bad behavior should have been readily apparent. During the jury trial in the death of Inisik, Kutu took the stand in his own defense, which is an odd move, but one that he insisted on doing, as he wanted to tell the jury that him and Inisik were arguing inside the apartment, but he had lost control and strangled her. But according to him, it was not intentional. He went on about how Inisik infuriated him, provoked him, and therefore asked the jury to convict him of manslaughter and not murder. Thankfully, the court on this day was competent enough to realize patterns of spousal abuse, as Kutu was sentenced to life in prison with no eligibility for parole until after 12 years by Justice Mary Hetherington. In her own concluding statements after sentencing, she had noted that the killing of Inisik was a pattern of spousal abuse, which I don't think it takes a genius to recognize. But even still, Kutu felt so entitled to his freedom and so justified in his actions that he would go on to appeal his conviction. Kutu would go on to file two notices of appeal with the Nunavut Court of Justice and the Ontario Court of Appeal, seeking either a new trial or a reduction of his parole eligibility period down to 10 years instead of 12. His justification for this is false arrest, insufficient evidence, inadequate attention paid to his level of intoxication, and that the jury failed to take into account how Inisik provoked him. Although these sentiments from Kutu are infuriating to hear, they are all too common in cycles of intimate partner violence. These sentiments are also what discourage women, girls, and 2S-identifying individuals to come forward when experiencing intimate partner violence. If you are talked badly to and talked down upon so much, you start to believe what the other person is saying. It even sounds like Kutu really believed what he was saying, trying to convince the court that murdering his spouse was simply not entirely his fault. The most recent reports about the situation state that Kutu was in fact caught, he was reapprehended, and he was reincarcerated for the rest of his sentence. It's unclear to me where he is now or how the rest of his sentence played out. But what I can tell you is that Inisik's family really struggled to grieve the loss of her life, especially in such a violent and frankly preventable manner. When doing research on this case, I found endless reports of Inisik being known as a gentle, loving, kind person who addressed everyone, including strangers, with the same affectionate word, akuluk, which is a form of endearment in Inusik's Inuit language. According to her friends and family, Inusik was known as a very hard worker who worked really diligently to sell jewelry to make sure she could provide for her daughter. Inusik was a lover of life. She had a very memorable laugh that people miss very dearly, according to her relatives. One quote I found said, People of all ages and races were the same to her. She treated all equally. 
She had friends, family, nieces, nephews, and loved every one of us. She always had a smile on her face, and she would sell her carvings to you, and sometimes she sold brooches as well. She was a happy person. She was happy to be alive. Inesik was gracious and a friend to all and a victim of intimate partner violence, trapped by the cycle of abuse and coercive control, as is the case for many Indigenous women in Canada. It's hard not to feel frustrated in situations like these, when Inesik's abuser was documented, on record, being abusive. He had been charged and convicted for violence against her before. It calls into question the mission of rehabilitation that the Canadian criminal justice system claims to abide by. I call it into question because certain Indigenous people, like Adam Capay from Thunder Bay, Ontario, who was trapped in solitary confinement for much, much longer than anyone is ever legally allowed to be due to legislative loopholes, suffered immense trauma from his time in what is, frankly, captivity. That didn't seem very rehabilitation-focused. And then on the other hand, abusers like Kutu, who victimized an indigenous woman amongst a crisis of missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and 2S identifying individuals in Canada, was let free not once, not twice, but multiple times, despite having a definite record of being abusive towards the woman in his life. It just doesn't seem like very effective rehabilitation to me. And I can't help but think that it's quite a coincidence that the Canadian criminal justice system is set up to hurt indigenous peoples, regardless of how a case proceeds. And ultimately now, it's up to Inesik's family and friends, her relatives and loved ones, to uphold and maintain the resources that she had attempted to use at some point in her life, including a woman's shelter, through different funding initiatives such as dinners and silent auctions in her honor. Which again calls into question the nature of our systems in this country, as the Canadian federal government handed out $40 billion, as I had mentioned previously in this episode. It's unclear to me if the Indigenous-focused women's shelter that Inusik's family and friends continued to raise money for received any of those funds. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Crimopedia podcast. I encourage you to check out Marianne Pierce's thesis about missing and murdered women in Canada and the nuances of the Canadian criminal justice system that keep women at the forefront of victimization in this country. I'll have her dissertation, as well as the database that I had mentioned in this episode previously, linked on my website at crimopediapod.ca. I'm also going to take this time to call upon you to be an active true crime content consumer and rally for additional funding supports for Indigenous-focused health services, support services, and crisis services in your area. Whether it's a matter of federal, provincial, or municipal funding, Indigenous-focused resources need to be at the forefront of reconciliation. Cultural safety is paramount, and it is the only way to ensure that First Nations, Inuit, and Métis women feel safe accessing resources to escape violence at home. I feel very strongly about this as Inesik's story is one of hundreds, if not thousands, that I've come across even just during my time, even just as a podcaster. Intimate partner violence is undoubtedly an epidemic, and one that was certainly worsened by the COVID-19 pandemic and quarantine and isolation. But the intersection of Indigenous identities, again, makes things so much worse. And if it weren't for my knowledge and understanding about how Canadian systems seek to continue oppressing Indigenous women in particular, I'm sure I'd still be sitting here wondering why. 
Alongside Marian Pierce's dissertation, I will have all the resources I used for this episode on my website at crimopediapod.ca. If you'd like to hear about a case, you can contact me there, you can send in a case suggestion, or you can hit me up on Instagram at crimopediapod, where you can send me a DM to talk about a case such as this one, or others mentioned in Marianne Pierce's dissertation, or you can suggest a different one for this series, or just one of my regular episodes. That's all for now, everybody. Happy New Year, stay safe, and I'll see you here next time. 